Welcome to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond. Today I have somebody, perhaps the most special guest of all, at least to me personally, my husband of exactly 10 years, Randall Scott Hammond. Welcome, Scott. Thank you. So glad to be here. (laughs) Finally. I'm the last one. The last one, the grand finale. I guess, you know, save the best for last, but okay. (laughs) <laughs> yes <sorry>. exactly <laughs> i didn't know if i should be offended or honored but i'm honored, honored. I'm you honored. should be honored you get pretty much mm, maybe the best last two chapters of a novel mm. in english maybe mm. i'm not staking my house on that claim <laughs> but this this is up there these are serious chapters this is yes. week eight of the Summer Old Book Club. And we are doing chapters 10 through 12, volume two. And they, I read them earlier today for like the zillionth time while prepping. (laughs) And I went downstairs to Scott's office and I did this like grotesque shriek of happiness (laughs) after reading them. He's like, don't do that on the podcast. So there you go. (laughs) That's that's very all true. All All true. true. (laughs) So... A proper introduction. Although I've said before on this podcast that Scott is the Elizabeth Bennett to my Mr. Darcy, the fun one at parties, funny, smart, kind, but with an edge, strong-willed, attractive, of course. Yeah. Of all the Jane Austen romantic leads, he's definitely the most like Captain Wentworth. Mm-hmm. He figures out ways to get things done. He's undaunted by obstacles that would crumble many people. (laughs) Among the various amazing things he's done recently, by the way, built an outside couch and table, become an avid sourdough baker. His sourdough loaves are incredible. Planted a massive garden, cooks like a gourmet chef, installs tile, electric, and plumbing, (laughs) Remodels entire houses, Mm. (laughs) rock climbs giant mountains, including El Capitan at Mm. Yosemite. Yes. Very proud of that. Supported me throughout graduate school, changed 80% of our three kids' diapers before they were three months old. Then the percentage changed quite a bit after that. But those early months, as anyone can tell you, are essential. Yeah. I cannot say enough good things about him. (laughs) basically. He's a structural engineer. We met our first day of college at the University of Arizona, Bear Down Wildcats. We have three beautiful children together. He's Scott Hammond. Hello. Thank you for your bravery (laughs) and coming on the podcast to talk Uh, persuasion with me. This is very brave of me because I have never read a book. Let me tell you, before we started recording, he looked at me and said, I don't know if I've been this nervous. So I'm not even joking. He literally said that. I don't know if those were my exact words. but It was very close to that. Yes, I am nervous, but I'm very happy to be part of the Persuasion podcast in this, the Summer Book Club. And your introduction, though, I think so much of that, that was like the nicest way you could have talked about me. That's way... I think it's a little cringy, the, how much 
crazy. <laughs> All of it was true though. You're kind like Chelsea. True. Chelsea said on a previous week, she said, you made me sound really cool. I don't well, think I'm not Chelsea cool. Chelsea is cool. Chelsea's and, very cool and yeah. you're very cool. So you're just going to have to live with it. <sighs> All right. I'll take it. I need that. <laughs> That. You can save that, save that and keep it when you need the encouragement. Okay. <laughs> All right. Every time that somebody comes on the podcast, I ask them three questions. Hmm. The time has come for those questions. Number one, who or what is your favorite author or book from more than 50 years ago? Well, I wasn't being honest when I said I hadn't read a book, but not a lot of books, not nearly as many as you have read. Um, but I'm just going to say Jane Austen is my favorite author from 50, more than 50 years ago because I really like Persuasion. This is my first Jane Austen book, and it was really fun. Um, but probably the only other author I've read over 50 years ago was probably C.S. Lewis. But I'm going to go with Jane Austen. Good choice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's, she's excellent. I mean, yes. don't get me wrong. I love C.S. Lewis. Yeah. but But – Hey. Austin's great. I know. And I love story. That's you do. So You've always love. loved narrative and story. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Number two, which literary character do you most identify with and why? Well, we were thinking of this earlier and uh, it was really hard to think of one, but I'm going to go with, well, I wish, okay. We're, we're talking Lord of the Rings. I wish I was Aragorn Strider because he's awesome. It's clear, but I'm not at all. I'm Gimli, I think. <laughs> I think I'm Gimli. Like, I'm pretty good and I'm, you know, passionate, but I'm very limited by emotion and hastiness. I think Gimli's who I am. Have you tried to smash any rings at councils lately with your I, axe? I would have, though. That yeah, is exactly, that is exactly I would have said, what you What's so said. hard about it? Just, Let's destroy it right now. Yes. <laughs> Why not? I know. Wow. Yeah. I know. So Gimli it is. I like that. That's good. Hmm. Hmm. All right. It's good because I don't think I am an elf, but I really, really wish I was. And uh, so Gimli is a dwarf who who ends up really liking elves. He does. So yeah. that's good good news. Yes. Above all odds. Yes. Okay. Against all odds. That's what I said. <laughs> Again, I said above, but against all odds. Let's go to question number Let's three. Question number <laughs> when was the first time you read a Jane Austen novel and what did you think? Well, very recently, this was the first Jane Austen novel I've read, as I said, and I thought it was- But you have seen movie adaptations before. I think I've only seen Pride and Prejudice. That's it. Really? Yes. I think Seriously? that's the only movie of Jane Austen adaptation oh my gosh, I've we, ever seen. We have some watching to And do. I think the only one has really been um, with, what's the modern one? The Keira Knightley. Keira Knightley. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's the only one I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, and I loved it. And I loved the, um, the close uh, detail, uh, amazing detail she has of humans and their interactions and the insight she has to why we do things. Mm-hmm. It's mm. a good reason to love yes. Austin. Yeah. So. All right. Well, should we get to it? Let's do it. The last chapters of Persuasion, the last episode of the Summer Old Book Club. What is? What are we on? 22, 23, and 24 chapters. Um, oh, the total I have chapters. the, uh, <laughs> I have that weird, the two volume version. You're right. So it's two volume. Mine is volume two, chapters 10 through 12. Right. Okay. Yes. So, 
We open up. We're in Bath, if you recall. Mm. We uh, we have just found out shocking information about Mr. Elliot via Mrs. Smith. He yeah. is not a good person. Anne's gut instinct was right. He's a slippery, slimy fellow, not to be trusted. It was my gut instinct. Gut instinct as well. Mm, good. Yeah, I knew it. You were reading was... between the lines. Yeah. Yes. Um, she uh, is concerned about how to tell the other people. She's concerned about how to tell Lady Russell, who has her heart set on Anne marrying Mr. Elliot and taking her mother's place at Kellynch. She um, is even worried about her father and sister, <laughs> who... That's very gracious of her to be worried about their feelings in this, considering how little they pick up on, like, mortification-wise. But, you know, right. Anne is a kind person. Yeah. And, um, and so that's where we are. We enter with this delightful scene of hypocrisy between Mrs. Clay and Elizabeth, where um, Mrs. Clay is teasing Elizabeth about Mr. Elliot's attentions to her, how he was begging for an invitation to return, which now that you finish the book, you know, in retrospect that this whole time, Mrs. Clay has been assiduously flirting with Mr. Elliot, trying to get him to go for her instead. So this is really um, quite deceitful and double-handed and insincere. Yes. Um, and then, so basically, this whole scene, it's a contest between who can be the most insincere, Mr. <laughs> Elliot or Mrs. Clay. And I I don't know if you can pick a winner. I'm going to say they both are losers. That's, that's a good way. I'm going to go with that. Yeah, that's yeah. a good way of putting it. Two losers. Um, Sorry. Anne is working very hard to avoid him. And then, surprise, surprise. Mr. and Mrs. Charles Musgrove, come back to Bath. Mary, we can't get away from her. She's here again. I kind of think Jane Austen was like, at this point going like, what should I do now? <laughs> what should, I, have, I don't know what to do. We have Mrs. Clay and we have Mr. Elliot. Let's just surprise with the Musgroves. I, think I don't know. She, Maybe I I'm not. Know. She I probably think, knew a lot more than- I think she's than, too tickled by she, Mary. She like, yeah. I think she loves writing Mary Musgrove, yeah, personally. I think she's so amused by her. Yeah, of course. Because why wouldn't she, she be? She is a clown show. Is that right? <laughs> is that okay to say? Is she a clown show? Oh, wait, Mary is, okay. I don't know. What do you mean? I was thinking of Mary, of the sister. You're going to have to yes. that out. <laughs> No, I'm not going to. That's a sister, right? Yeah, Mary. Yeah. Um, but I, I was unsure whether you were saying, I've never heard the phrase clown show. Oh, well, she's just constantly complaining and it's funny. Yes, she is. That's is. why I think that Jane Austen likes writing Mary. Yes, she does. Um, <laughs> and it turns out everybody's in Bath, basically. Um, Henrietta has come to pick out her wedding clothes. And... Um, what I most like about this whole sequence is that we also see that just like Jane Austen likes writing Mary, I think she also enjoys writing Charles um, and the way that they tease each other, which is not a great example for a marriage, but does make for some really amusing moments in the text. Right. Um, and yeah. 
I, I think one of my favorite quotes, I have two of his quotes that I really like. And when, uh, when Mary is saying to Charles that we have to go to the uh, dinner party, right? Uh-huh. And Charles said, and she says, but you promised Charles as he protests that he does not want to go because he wants to go to the theater. Uh, no, I did not promise. I only smirked and bowed and said the word happy. <laughs> there was no promise. <laughs> I love it. I love it that he's, he's playing games with that. He said he'll go, but he'll never, he didn't promise. So he doesn't have to go. Right. No, no, no. <laughs> It is funny. Smirked and bowed is pretty hilarious. <laughs> and shortly after that comes I, the second quote that you really love that I, you also brought up earlier before yeah, we were talking. Yes. Yeah. He, on he, here. he says when they're, de- what they're deciding. Uh, it's that same conversation. They're debating. Charles really wants to go to the play. Cause he's like, rightfully right with good judgment. He's saying, I don't want to go to dinner with the Dalrymples. That sounds super boring. It's not even dinner actually, which makes it so much worse. Who wants to go to a party with boring people with no food? This is the worst. He does not want to go. Right. And they're talking about, well, maybe you should go to see Mr. Elliot then at least. Right. Mary is dying to see Mr. (laughs) Elliot because of the Elliot continents. Oh yes. And he says, I'm not one of those to neglect reigning power to bow to the rising sun as he talks about Mr. Elliot as the rising sun, (laughs) Sir Walter, the reigning power. I love it. I am not one of those to neglect the reigning power. (laughs) (laughs) I would like to see you use that in a casual conversation. Well, I like it. It's kind of the best of the, the, the uh, old guy saying, get off my lawn. It's like, (laughs) Hey, listen, the new school is not the best way to do it. Okay. There's a reigning power here and Sir Walter is it. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> yes. And I, I love that Charles knows he has to go, but he's just continuing this yes. basically to torment Mary. Yes. He's Honestly, fun. he's having fun. It's kind of horrible, but this is so the dynamic of Mr. And Mrs. Bennett in Pride and Prejudice. This is like Mr. And Mrs. Bennett in the early parts of their marriage. That's exactly what I thought of. Cause I've seen that movie <laughs> and I love Mr. Bennett yeah. in that movie. And Charles Musgrove is like a mini Mr. Bennett. Mini. Yes. <laughs> Mr. Bennett is much much more clever, but yes, a mini version of it. Yes, Charles Musgrove is a little too into hunting to be like yeah. Mr. Bennett level. Yeah, he's just not as, um, he's not as skilled. He's I mean, did clever. you catch that uh, he especially enjoyed um, <laughs> Captain Benwick because they had had an infamous set to it, rat hunting in my father's barns. <laughs> that was how they like bonded was over rat hunting. Some, some violence. Yes. Rat hunting. rat hunting. That's not violence. He's That's, a good guy. Yeah. We hunted rats together. We hunted rats. We're good. Yeah. We're buds now. And throughout this chapter, we're seeing, we're going back and forth. The Musgroves are here. Again, they're just classic Musgroves, like warm, welcoming, friendly. And then we go back and forth between that warmth and that welcoming friendliness of the Musgroves and the cold insipidity of Sir Walter and Elizabeth. And so in the rooms, or when when um, Sir Walter and Elizabeth come to visit the Musgroves to, as one does when uh, in the Regency period, when one's paying their respects, when somebody enters town, you really need to go visit them to show that you respect them. So Sir Walter and Miss Elliot come, they gave a general chill. <laughs> yes, I love that. 
It's like they have heartless elegance, as she says. That's tough. I, I I hope they didn't know that they were giving that chill because that's pretty brutal. They I'm walk into 100% a room. Hundred percent sure they didn't they didn't know. know. But that's a that's pretty brutal. We all kind of have the you know. Sometimes I fear are, that I have a bit of a uh, chill when I enter a no, room. No, <laughs> you have no, none of that chill. No, no, it's very good when you enter a room, I would say. But there are people, we oh, all have yes. a, pre- a person, when they when they come in, you go, it's mm. changed. Heartless. The fun has changed. The fun <laughs> is over. Okay, let's move on. <laughs> all right. Yeah. So um, Wentworth is getting closer and closer to Anne. And you can see, classic Jane Austen, you have this ongoing discussion, party or no party, oh, Elizabeth and Sir Walter coming in, blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, Wentworth and Anne are sort of revolving around each other, like planets, like slowly circling, Mm -hmm. interacting here and there, always with an eye to the other person. Um, And so (laughs) they finally bring up the period of time that they were apart and that they were once together. And it's a very awkward, short little moment, but it is sort of a preview, so to speak, of Mm. what is coming. The ice is melting. Mm. And um, Anne says, I'm not a card player. And and Captain Wentworth said, you you weren't formerly, I know you did not used to like cards, but time makes many changes. Mm. Again, we have our time theme um, and what does time do to a person? And in this case, it did not make Anne a card player. Um, but what it does do is he said, and as if it were the result of immediate feeling, it is a period indeed, eight years and a half is a period. And then they are obliged to move on. But this moment of recognizing this space, this space of time between each other is a prelude right it does it breaks the ice yes of okay the elephant in the room the history is now tangible it's present Mm -hmm. correct so what happens then (laughs) (laughs) um well, <laughs> I do love this is a minor issue and we should probably move on to the next chapter because that is where everything happens. But um, I really love this moment. <laughs> I really love this moment where Elizabeth leaves her card for Captain Wentworth, which means she has invited him to her house. And um, she gives a courteous, comprehensive smile to all and one smile and one card more decidedly for Captain Wentworth. The truth was that Elizabeth had been long enough in Bath to understand the importance of a man such an air of such an air and appearance as his. The past was nothing, which by the way is super interesting that the past is nothing compared to what just went down between Anne and Wentworth and their like acknowledgement of the past. But the past was such a big deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But the present was that Captain Wentworth would move about well in her drawing room. Mm. So he's basically a piece of furniture. Like he's <laughs> meant for admiring. There's no more than that. And then even Very better, sure. he has this disdain in his eye. <laughs> And Mary whispers very audibly, 
only think of Elizabeth's including everybody. I do not wonder. Captain Wentworth is delighted. You see, he cannot put the card out of his hand. <laughs> We've all been there. The card cannot, we just can't put the card out of her hand. We're so excited. It's so fun. Um, and, and Wentworth blushes and he makes like this contemptuous grimace that only Anne sees because he turns away to hide his face. And I just love that <laughs> moment that it's just like Mary misses the boat so hard yes. in classic Mary fashion. Mm. And I told you clown show. You <laughs> maybe don't know that term, but I, it's what, how I. <laughs> okay. <laughs> clown show. Okay. We're going to, that's the last time we're going <laughs> to reference clown show. But there you go. All right. So. Mrs. Clay and Mr. Elliot met in the street outside. We don't need to talk about it, but we know fishy things are afoot. It's fishy. Very I fishy. I don't like it. No. It's very fitting, though, for Elliot. Mm, and for Mr. Clay. That's true. <laughs> okay. Here we are at the chapter of chapters. The glorious. Yes. The glorious uh, moment. Moments, really. There's many just so moments. many beautiful things in this chapter, yes. and it always makes me cry. Hmm. I'll read the special line that makes me cry in a minute, but I'm not going to get there yet. Okay. Yeah. I'm very interested in what you're going to say. This is the chapter that, just so you know, a little background context here. Pride and Prejudice was always my favorite. Like, I love Pride and Prejudice. Love, love, love. And I read it every year at Christmas. It's my own personal Christmas tradition with myself. Um, But in recent years especially influenced by this chapter. Every time I read this chapter, I go, no, I think persuasion's my favorite. And so Mm. persuasion has edged out Pride and Prejudice, which is a big deal. It's in the lead? Yes, it has been in the lead for several years. I didn't know that. Yes. Wow. I know. It's a big deal. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Now I know. It's this chapter. Just wait and see. It is a good chapter. Okay. Okay. So... Wow, I honestly, uh, it's so much here that it's hard to enter into it. Mm. So a little scene setting. She goes over to the inn where they're staying, where the Musgroves are staying. And um, Anne is entering into these conversations that are kind of irrelevant to her. Um, But they are talking about engagements, which is obviously a very loaded topic given the past. Mm. And um, Anne and Captain Wentworth make eye contact, and it's very fraught. And Captain Wentworth is writing a letter. And Captain Harville comes over to talk to Anne. And this is when it starts getting really good. Yeah. What did you think of this? I just thought it was, like, such a cool way to start an amazing chapter. of Like, no part of it was, like, dull till you get to the, like, climax of the chapter, which is pretty much the climax of their relationship and the book really but it's such a cool way to start of uh with talking to captain harville having such like a respectful friendly conversation and clearly they both enjoyed each other and Anne was like in a great mood already like it, it wasn't you know what we'll find out slightly later in the chapter where obviously she's going to be in a good mood but they're they're having like a great discussion and um 
they both like understand each other's like value in the discussion and they really it's a really sweet moment like they aren't really in agreement but there's this overflowing warmth yeah so they're debating over (laughs) the characters of how men and women love yes and anna's saying that women love longer and um more steadfast with more constancy right and and is saying she says when existence or when hope is gone that women still love men their their love right mm-hmm. not men in general but their love and and whereas men don't nearly have as much constancy, uh, constancy. and of course harville even in the friendliest terms completely disagrees with her and gives his reasoning um and it's just so funny. They can disagree more, but they're enjoying the conversation uh, a lot. It's a lovely conversation. And it's so fitting that, <laughs> so Wentworth is listening. And yes. obviously this is a very sensitive subject on who loves longer, whose love lasts through hardship, through right. death, because this is all occasioned by the death of Captain Harville's sister that Captain Benwick was supposed to marry. And now he's marrying Louisa. And, um, and so Wentworth is listening. His pen falls down at one point. Right. He's, so he's writing, he's writing a letter. He's writing this letter. Which we think he's just writing a letter, but we find out he's writing something else also. Yes. But he's let's, let's the pause on that for a sec. Cause okay. I want to dive in a little bit to the content. Okay. Okay. So, What's super interesting is that Jane Austen uses this conversation, I think, to explore some of the hardship and challenges of being a woman and loving someone. And so while Harville is this super generous, wonderful person, Mm -hmm. he still has, like Austin makes very clear, he has a man's thoughts. He has a man's perspective. Yes. And this is who he is. And he's, it's a lovely conversation and it's wonderful, but he is, um, he says things like this quote. I believe in a true analogy between our bodily frames and our mental, and that as our bodies are the strongest, so are our feelings, capable of bearing the most rough usage and riding out the heaviest weather. And Anne doesn't disagree with him. She says, your feelings may be the strongest, but the same spirit of analogy will authorize me to assert that ours are the most tender. Man is more robust than woman, but he's not longer lived, which exactly explains my view of the nature of their attachments. And, and then fascinatingly, and this is where I think I, I hear Jane Austen like entering into this conversation mm-hmm. as herself and not just as Anne Elliot, right. but um, Captain Harville says, let me observe that all histories are against you, all stories, prose and verse. If I had such a memory as Benwick, I could bring you 50 quotations in a moment on my side, the argument. And I do not think I ever opened a book in my life, which had not something to say upon woman's inconstancy. Songs and proverbs all talk of woman's fickleness, but perhaps you will say these were all written by men. Because they were. (laughs) Nan says, perhaps I shall. (laughs) Yes, yes, if you please. No reference to examples in books. 
Men have had every advantage of us in telling their own story. Education has been theirs in so much higher a degree. The pen has been in their hands. I will not allow books to prove anything. But how shall we prove anything? Says Harville. <laughs> and Anne says, we never shall. Mm-hmm. We never can expect to prove anything upon such a point. It is a difference of opinion which does not admit of proof. We each begin probably with a little bias towards our own sex and upon that bias build every circumstance in favor of it, which has occurred within our own circle. Many of which circumstances, perhaps those very cases which strike us the most, may be precisely such as cannot be brought forward without betraying a confidence or in some respect saying what should not be said. Mm-hmm. And what I really love about this is that now we've moved beyond just the basic conversation of, well, women love longer. Well, men love stronger. We're not at that point anymore. Anne is making a point about the nature of how we speak and how we talk to one another and what excuses and proofs, I'm air quoting for those of you who are listening, (laughs) proofs we use to justify ourselves in how we, what we believe, especially about our core natures as people and how these to some extent are inescapable for us. And the only, there's no proof or remedy that can bring us beyond that, but that we have to um, walk that thin line of, hey, books and examples in books aren't going to prove anything, but also your own examples that you've seen in daily life also don't well, prove anything. Mm-hmm. Right. And I just think, okay, only Jane Austen would put this long <laughs> interlude about the nature of belief and the nature of learning from each other and listening and learning how to not simply trust your own best judgment in this intense moment where there's all this romance going on in the background. Totally. It's amazing. Love it. Yeah. And also, I mean, for me, just to, to know that Jane Austen and the 18 early 1800s right is writing this yes it's a woman writing the book yes that hasn't talked about these things very if ever before uh i i love that that she's alluding to to these things and to be clear i uh agree i think Anne wins the argument even though they're not quarreling very much yeah (laughs) they're being very friendly um but like you're saying, it's not about necessarily uh, so strongly as a man loves more or a woman loves more. Yes. It's much more than that. Yes. And so, okay, there's this fantastic, just please read it. I'll, I'll post a link in the, um, in the blog, oldbooksofgrace.com. But um, Cornel West, the philosopher and um, professor of religion, gave this keynote address at a Jane Austen Society meeting a few years ago. It's called Power and Freedom in Jane Austen's Novels. And it is incredible. I just love it. I could quote literally all of it to you. But in relation to this moment, I just want to quote part of this to add to this like picture that Jane Austen is painting and what she's trying to tell us about ourselves that we'll get into even more as this chapter goes along. But um, this idea... So... That West writes, anytime you examine yourself, you see that history, society, heritage leave deposits inside. So when people say that she doesn't deal with the larger social context, that she's only a miniaturist, well, so is Chekhov. 
But when you dig deep enough inside your soul, especially the dark precincts of your soul on the margins, you are always already dealing with what society has shaped you into. You're already dealing with what your family or your church or your mosque or your synagogue or any other civic institution that has influenced you has shaped you into. And the question is, how do you get some kind of critical distance on the one hand, but on the other hand, not fall into the fallacy of thinking that somehow you will forever transcend all of your past, all of your history. And um, I'm just like profoundly moved by that um, because I think that is Jane Austen's like interest is um, some things are true beyond ourselves. She's not a moral relativist in any way, mm. but she's saying you're never going to transcend yourself and your own opinions. You're always going to be caught in your context, in your body, in your time and place. But how can you achieve the critical distance needed to see things from another person's point of view? Mm-hmm. Which I think will tie into persuasion. Yes. Maybe later. Yes. In this I think so. <laughs> so you can file that away in the back of your mind. And I, mm-hmm. I'm like looking at this essay going, I wish I could read you all these things and maybe I'll read more in a little bit. So just we'll keep going Mm. so Wentworth okay here we go so he I mean maybe you want to say more but Wentworth is writing this letter yes and Harville keeps going are you done yet (laughs) (laughs) and then and Wentworth says no not quite and Harville's going all right I'm talking with Anne (laughs) it's fine we're having a good time we're having a great conversation over here I love that like you take as long as you want but you know we're just talking So he finishes the letter. Yes. And he's agitated. He's clearly like, he's folding the letter. It's kind of like, (laughs) like he's, he's agitated. He's He's impatient. (laughs) Anne doesn't know how to understand it. It literally says that. And as we know, when something, when we see the word understand, like big things are going on here. And this is a super interesting moment. And knew not how to understand it. She had the kindest good morning. God bless you from Captain Harville. But from him, not a word, nor a look. He had passed out of the room without a look. Hmm. Right. He's feeling, he's feeling it. He's feeling the pressure. Yes. Something's, he's done something that uh, he's kind of feeling shame about. Right. Yes. And then they leave and he comes back into the room because he had forgotten his gloves. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Smooth. Clever. <laughs> He's smooth. Um, Mr. Elliot would never do that. Right. This is why we like Captain Wentworth and why we don't like Mr. Elliot. <laughs> but he um, places the letter before Anne. And it's the work of an instant. And I love that I love in that. comparison with this weight of years. Yeah. The like tension between these moments in time, these mm. instants that are like world shattering for people. And the weight of years that are yeah. embedded in, in them at the same time. Right. And, and Austin repeats that twice. The work of an instant and then the next sentence. The revolution which one instant had made in Anne was almost beyond expression. I love that. She's so clever. And she reads the letter. Wow. I, w- I was reading his letter. And I, whenever I write like little notes, like birthday notes or whatever, it mm-hmm. takes me like 20 minutes to write like three <laughs> sentences. 
I'm like trying to think of like what to say and I'm so bad, you know? <laughs> and he writes this like amazing, like long thing in five minutes or whatever, 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, this note that he's, you know, let's just, let's just say it. He professes his love for her. Yes. And I was very jealous of his mm. skill in writing, I mean, which to, you have as well. Oh, I thank don't you. have. To be fair, this was a society in which people were writing letters yes. all the time. They were good. Yeah. Ve- very frequent letter writers. Yeah. And we don't have that as much today, <laughs> but it is a beautiful skill. And yeah. he writes... I have to read aloud the extremely famous lines, even though they are not, they are, they're lovely, but this is not like what gets me in my soul, which is the, um, you pierce my soul. I'm half agony, Mm. half hope. Mm -hmm. And those are lines that everybody quotes when they read this. (laughs) Who wouldn't? I mean, it's very quotable. It's very quotable. It's very romantic. The the movie trailer probably. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Okay. Which is very a great line, but it's kind of obvious. Yeah, it's kind of obviously the the power, you know. Well, the intense. I really like line. that. This is not only a confession of his love; hmm. it's a confession of his error at hmm. the same time. He says, "Unjust, I may have been weak and resentful. I have been, but never inconstant." Hmm. Right. Yeah. So good. He's not, he's not trying to make excuses for why this is happening, why eight years has gone by mm-hmm. between them. But he's also saying, I, it's, I haven't wavered in my love, but I have definitely done some wrong things yes. along the way. Yes. So Anne is overpowered by happiness, but she's so happy that she is like almost ill. Like everybody's like, oh my gosh, Anne, are you okay? <laughs> I don't, you know, I just don't understand people who like when happiness happens, um, other emotions come out of it. And to me, that's like a different emotion. I have like very like normal, happy, um, normal to you, normal Scott, to normal to what you. you would consider happy, like, and you know, reactions. I don't, I don't cry to happy things mm. and I don't feel ill when I'm happy. Mm. Well, I have done both those things. I know, before, so. I know. And I'm just acknowledging <laughs> that I don't understand it. It's my fault. I'm sure. I just don't understand. It. Well, this is probably also why you relate more to Captain Wentworth. Like, I doubt he feels ill when he feels happy. Right. Like that doesn't seem very went worthy in. But Anne is feeling it. Anne is feeling it. She needs to go. (laughs) Um, Charles Musgrove. I, I wrote in my notes that this is his moment in the sun. He has these great little quips in these sections and now he's coming to the rescue and he's going to make it possible for Anne and Wentworth Mm. to have their time together. albeit unknowingly, but Mm. still Charles Musgrove. The hero we all needed yes, and yet, didn't know. Yet another moment that created uh, the potential for their love to, their story to go on. Yes. It was another and moment. And let me tell you something that I really don't like. Are you ready for this? Not from the original novel because it's pretty much amazing. Okay. In the 2007 BBC adaptation of this scene, <laughs> if you've seen it you probably already know what i'm talking about they get the Anne being sick part she's like frantic 
Like it's very un Anne Elliot to me. Like she's like, <laughs> like just like going crazy. And she literally runs like out the door after Captain Wentworth, like runs after him. And they meet on this street in Bath and it's very picturesque. But I'm like, Anne Elliot doesn't Does run it, after men. When was that? BBC 90s? No, 2007. 2007. Wow. I would have thought 90s, like the 90s. Would have it's a very sense. 90s, like rom-com moment, yeah, like okay. running after the airplane that's about bad, to leave. No, bad. I was an extreme yeah. uh, antagonist of, uh, of that portrayal. Jane Austen did not write that movie. No. That's, we know that. She did not. She did not. I don't, <laughs> I, I meant to watch the like 94, 93, whatever it is version today. And I ran out of time, right. but um, so Maybe that scene's done better there. I don't remember. But anyways, that drives me nuts. And I'm taking the moment right now to tell you how terrible. No, the adaptation itself is pretty good. But that scene is so wrong. It's just so wrong. It's not Jane Austen. It's so wrong. I think they need to hire you for these movies to consult. Hire me, BBC. Hello, BBC. Hello. If you're listening, please. Dr. Grace Hammond, medievalist and Jane Austen (laughs) enthusiast at your service. She will make your movie better. Hopefully, no. In sure. that case, I would have. In that case, yes, no, 100%, clearly, hundred percent. Um. Okay, back to away from my tangent of rage <laughs> at that scene. Um, and let's go back so, to Charles Musgrove. Anne needs to leave. She's feeling Anne needs so. To leave. They run into Wentworth serendipitously. Well, yeah, but Charles Musgrove decides that he'll walk her. Right. Yes, and he has to go look at a gun. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Wentworth, can you walk her home? My, my sick sister-in-law, I, I really have to go look at a gun right now. So weird. And it sounds great. It's a second size double barrel. Mm. Um, I don't know what that means, but, you know. He, well. He's excited about he it. He needs to look at the gun. <laughs> Thankfully, Wentworth is there. Wentworth is ready. Because Anne is feeling so sick, she needs someone to walk with her. Yeah. <laughs> so... Then comes this great time. <laughs> Austin, uh, they're in the public. They're in public view. They're walking. Mm. Their smiles are reined in, though their spirits are dancing in private rapture. But uh, they walk into this more retired, quiet gravel walk where they can be really honest. And they have the power of conversation, Austin writes, which is perfect for this novel. Yes. Um, The power of conversation makes the present hour a blessing indeed. And it prepares it for all the immortality which the happiest recollections of their own future lives could bestow. So here they are exchanging memories and exchanging promises. And um, it's so beautiful. This scene, this is the line that gets me. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. They're talking about their years of division and estrangement. There they returned again into the past, more exquisitely happy, perhaps, in their reunion than when it had first than when it had been first projected, more tender more tried, more fixed in a knowledge of each other's character, truth, and attachment, more equal to act, more justified in acting. 
And I love that line because to me, like what a beautiful representation of a partnership in marriage mm-hmm. where the deeper you journey after, especially after mistakes, after trials, yeah. after all of the ridiculous things that life throws at you to become more tender, more tried, more fixed in a knowledge of each other's character mm-hmm. is so beautiful. And I especially like that last line, more equal to act, more justified in acting. Mm-hmm. And here we are back at Austin's interest in decision-making in reaching that critical distance from ourselves, but also never escaping ourselves and who we are, but really knowing somebody else, Mm -hmm. recognizing somebody else, what makes a true, a true marriage basically. Mm -hmm. And pushing through Mm -hmm. the hangups, the things that uh, might dissuade you. Yes. And once getting through those, those moments and those times like they have, um, the more they are capable of loving each other. Yes. And I love that, that it, love it. it actually increases their capacity for love. Right. Which is beautiful. Right. And I just think that's the line that when I read that, I went, mm. this beats Pride and Prejudice now. <laughs> Wow. That's a powerful line. That's a powerful line line. with tears in my eyes. Um, So I love that. I think it's just really lovely. And I think um, some, some critics have described this book um, persuasion um, as a book of second chances. My old advisor, one of my old advisors at Duke taught this class about like literature of second chances. And she included this book in it, which was so cool along with Shakespeare's A Winter's Tale. But another way you can describe it is literature of resurrection, where um, you have this radiant new life after coming through this darkness. Um, and resurrection of necessity includes death because you're rising mm-hmm. from the dead. Right. Um, and I think this line captures that idea so fully, right. this set of lines. Right. They've gone through this process yes. to get them here. Yes. Right. Yeah. So... Mm. So then they start going over all of the timeline, right? Mm-hmm. Everything that has brought them here and everything yes. that happened and recounting all of both of their uh, mistakes and reasonings and feelings. Yes. Right. Remembering, Remembering. recalling, which talking. I love. I love. It's not like that stuff didn't, matter yes this is why we're here yes yes and I love that that um again Wentworth is in a confessional mode which is so cool where he's not just saying I've always loved you Anne like you've always been the only one for me (laughs) which he does say that but he he just didn't know himself is what he says which is just great um he said that he had never loved anyone but her but he said he had been constant unconsciously and even unintentionally. He had meant to forget her. He believed it to be done. Um, And he had been unjust to her merits because he had suffered from those same merits. And 
he was obliged to acknowledge that only at Uppercross had he learned to do her justice and only at Lyme had he begun to understand himself. Love it. Right. It's not just understanding Anne and getting through the like pain of it. It's also learning himself as these things happen to him and them together. And at different times, he's learning different things about himself that have like allowed him to get over the pain of eight years ago. Yes. And it is actually, I think, really closely related to this idea from St. Augustine. Um, And of course, Augustine has it in terms of loving God, but he, he says, you know, we begin with like looking inside ourselves and then we learn to love. We learn to love God. We learn to seek from this process of sort of interior examination. And Wentworth, as he's beginning to understand himself and to be exposed again to Anne in all her goodness, in all her discernment and judgment and, um, and her, her practice of living he has to understand himself in order to learn to love, like as it, you know, to unearth that love, I guess, because that love is there right. already. It's pre-existing, right. but, but it has was, to be unearthed. And he was actively trying resisting. to resist it. Yes. Yeah. And then as he learns himself, he, he no longer could resist that. Right? Yes. Yes. Um, absolutely. I love that. He's just being, he's being brutally honest with himself too and why things have happened rather than making excuses or, yes. or just, or like feeding the anger or the pain that he's had before. Yes. Right. Yeah. And um, there's so much here. We could talk for hours about this one conversation, this one section, but let's um, jump ahead a little bit to uh <laughs> to Anne and them discussing mm. her decision. So mm. we've talked Wentworth and his resentment, his folly, his ignorance and what has kept them apart. And right. it's funny because he said, you know, if I had written you, would you have responded? Would you, would, and she's like, of course. And he's like, oh my gosh, I'm an idiot. Like I am so stupid. Right. But um, Anne, now they talk about Anne and mm. her decision-making and and she had been persuaded mm-hmm. by Lady Russell not to marry him. Yes. And I love this quote that Anne says, if I was wrong in yielding to persuasion once, remember that it was to persuasion exerted on the side of safety, not of risk. When I yielded, I thought it was to duty, but not, but no duty could be called an aid here. In marrying a man indifferent to me, she's all, talking about Mr. Elliot, by the right, way. Right, right. All risk would have been incurred, and all duty violated. And she, I mean, she's saying that I was wrong to be persuaded that way. Yes, but I was completely wrong, and I see the whole. That's the been the last eight years has been that wrong. Mm-hmm. But I had to for duty. Yes, I was. It, it was it was almost of more importance. And especially now that we're they're back together kindling yes. eight years later. Yes. Can it be like, I had to do that. And I'm glad I, you know, it's almost like I glad, I'm glad I, 
I did, or I'm not, I'm, I'm not glad, but there was no other way. Right. And where's the duty. quote? There's another quote that Anne mm. says where she goes, if I had acted differently, I would have gone against my conscience. That would have been a greater oh, evil. Yes, yes. Um, dang it. Where did that one go? Yeah. But, I thought I marked that down. Oh, here it is. Yeah. Um, here, you finish what we're talking about and then we'll go there because it's it's at no, the end we'll of this chapter. Now. Okay, so she says, I've been thinking over the past, trying impartially to judge of the right and the wrong. I must believe that I was right much as I suffered from it, that I was perfectly right in being guided by the friend whom you will love better than you do now. To me, she was in the place of a parent. Do not mistake me, however. I am not saying that she did not err in her advice. It was perhaps one of those cases in which advice is good or bad only as the event decides. And for myself, I certainly never should in any circumstance of tolerable similarity give such advice. Mm -hmm. But I mean that I was right in submitting to her and that if I had done otherwise, I should have suffered more in continuing the engagement than I did even in giving it up because I should have suffered in my conscience. Mm -hmm. um, and I love that idea that Anna's so carefully parsing out here. This is such a big deal for Jane Austen. I think it's almost, it's one of the main points of this entire book, which is that there's not just mistakes and right choices hmm. or wrong choices and right choices, that there's always black and white. Um, <laughs> there's, there's a... Well, <laughs> we uh, we had a slight interruption of our four-year-old needing to use the potty. Yeah. So he emerged groggily from his room but, and had a little pee. Yeah. And we're back now. But we're very happy because he doesn't <laughs> usually wake up in the middle of the night. He usually just pees his bed. To go to the potty. And so that was pretty fun. But that was a to, moment of triumph as we, parents, but it was a moment of dismay as podcasters. Yes, we had to stop it and... But we're back. We're back Let's, now. Uh, back to chapter. <laughs> back 20. into the flow. Yes. <laughs> so, okay. So I was talking about this idea of right and wrong decisions that Anne is interested in mm -hmm. and discussing. And what I really love about this is that Anne complicates that idea of the black and white right and wrong decision. Sometimes we make the right decision for the wrong reason sometimes we make wrong decisions for the right reasons. And that's basically what Anne is saying in this moment is that um, she was right in submitting to Lady Russell as her mother, as her surrogate mother. And that even though now clearly she's with Wentworth and she, does she wish that she had spent those eight and a half years with him? Yes, she does. But that in life, it rarely is as simple as I made the right decision or I made the wrong decision. Mm -hmm. And that Austin is resisting this idea. And it's an idea that I'm compelled by and that I think we need to take up wholeheartedly. Mm -hmm. And I, I love that part. I think we may have just read it. I forget, honestly, but um, where Austin writes, it was perhaps, I guess, uh, Anne is saying this, isn't she? It was perhaps one of those cases which advice is good or bad only as the event decides. Mm -hmm. And I, that like drives home that point to mm -hmm. me. Like it, we don't know. Mm -hmm. um, 
And she said, I wouldn't give that advice myself ever. She wouldn't give that advice, but we don't know how it's going to end up. Yes. It's going to be good or not. Yes. But all you can really know is if you're doing it for the right reasons. Yes. Right. So if you're doing it for the right reasons, you can control that. Yes. And that's your agency. Yes. But, but you cannot necessarily control the outcome. Good or bad. Yes. And cause you don't know. Mm -hmm. And, um, if we're to, to be right, uh, we can do things for the right reasons, even if it may possibly seem uh, for a wrong outcome. Mm-hmm. But we don't know. We don't know the outcome. We don't know the future. Um, and it ends, this chapter ends with this lovely note of grace. Um, Wentworth is again confessing himself as he does. And he says, um, I was proud, too proud to ask again, to ask Anna marry him again after that rejection, even though Anne would have said yes. And he says, I did not understand you. I shut my eyes and would not understand you or do you justice. Um, and this, this part is great. We didn't even talk about this in our, in our discussion beforehand, but this part is so wonderful. I've been used to the gratification of believing myself to earn every blessing that I enjoyed. Mm. I have valued myself on honorable toils and just rewards. Like other great men under reverses, he added with a smile, I must endeavor to subdue my mind to my fortune. I must learn to brook being happier than I deserve. Yeah. (laughs) Lovely. Yeah. Right. And he knows, um, he feels that he doesn't deserve her love mm-hmm. after after he made himself scary. not understand her as right. he says he, right i would not understand right. you and and that draws attention to a really important point which is that in order to understand something we have to will ourselves to understand it as well mm. um understanding requires uh, openness and an ascent of the mind. And we can shut ourselves off to understanding just as much as we can open ourselves to it. Interesting. Yeah. It makes more sense when you say openness compared to will ourselves. Right. Well, will but ourselves really makes like we can like make ourselves make, understand something, which we can't. <laughs> but, but no, I mean, it still works. It's just, but it definitely But it's a, a will thing. You have to want to understand. Right. You don't just naturally get it. If you close Especially it another person. Something as complex as another mm, human being. Yeah. Yeah, that's totally true. You have to be willing to, and like he says later, if we can just maybe move on to the last chapter. Yes. Talking about Lady Russell. Yes. Oh, <laughs> such a good line. Uh, first of all, these are this is a reaction chapter, basically. Everybody just showing their reaction to the news of Anne and Captain Wentworth. And um, Sir Walter made no objection. Elizabeth did nothing worse than look cold and unconcerned. Uh, Sir Walter saw Captain Wentworth frequently by daylight and decided, all right, that's a good looking man. I'm not embarrassed by him. And he enters his name mm. in the book of books in the, the baronetcy. The, the vain Sir Walter. <laughs> we started quoting the uh, mirror reference yes. earlier today. One, one cannot, one cannot escape, get, a, escape get away oneself. from, yeah, get yeah. Away from oneself. <laughs> Too good. That's very true. Um, Lady Russell. Now, this is a very interesting line um, because like Wentworth and like Anne, too, she is learning to do. And um, she has to learn. 
She must learn to feel that she had been mistaken with regard to both Wentworth and Elliot, Mr. Elliot, and how it was her own biases, her own idea of what good manners meant that influenced her judgments of their character. Mm -hmm. And again, that idea of what you're drawn to, what you're inclined to doesn't necessarily indicate moral rightness. Um, and the importance of that idea that we all have these biases, these things that we really admire, that we really like, um, especially in, in like superficial cases like these, we go, I didn't like that. I like that, whatever. And we let that become our moral compass. Right. Um, and it, That's a, it disguises. It's an amazing reminder of like checking yourself on what you are, what you love and what you might be like disgusted with. Yes. Um, are we persuaded by our own kind of yes. blind spots? Yes. Right. How we persuade ourselves is actually right. like a major theme in persuasion. It's not just persuasion by other people, right. not even mostly persuasion by other people. Right. It is. Well, you're, it's, and you got to think it's usually more powerful coming from yourself. Yes. Well, that beginning quote that (laughs) how easily, dang it, I'm not, I'm going to get it wrong, but how easily we can persuade ourselves when we already want to believe something. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's not exactly it. But yeah, that line is so good where it's, of course, we're going to justify and believe whatever we can make ourselves believe from within. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And But Lady Russell, though she doesn't have the quickness of perception that Anne possesses, though she wasn't able to see Wentworth's character or Mr. Elliot's character, she has this, which is even more important and and lovely, which is um, she was a very good woman. And if her second object was to be sensible and well-judging, her first was to see Anne happy. She loved Anne better than she loved her Mm -hmm. own abilities. And that's love. Yeah. Like, yeah, absolutely is love. I mean, every, you can, <laughs> I mean, I read that as a parent and I go, oh my gosh, I feel like parenting is a journey of like learning to love your children better than you love your own judgment about your children. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. And it, I think it's a, a, a tell as well for love. Like when you can see by the actions and the character of people and where they the hierarchy of value they put on things, whether or not they love yeah. compared to whether you're saying you love. Yeah. No, the it's, it's apparent when you value certain things over your own uh, judgment. Yes. Right. Like lady Russell yes. is saying to Anne. Yes. She loves her more than thinking she was right. Yes. Um, and clearly she was wrong and she's realizing that, but in that she learned that that wisdom in herself like and actually that's only the way that that, that's one of the few ways we can actually get to the point of admitting that we're wrong or at least I speak for myself and I think for you too yeah when I say that it's very hard for me to admit that I'm wrong and one of the few ways into getting into that point is is by choosing to love the other person more than I love my like strong sense of my own discernment and my own abilities. Right. And um, then being able to enter into the issue Mm -hmm. or the person or whatever it is Mm -hmm. outside of myself in a sense, still in myself, but in that choice of choosing the person over my right uh, preferences. Right. And uh, so Lady Russell shows her character in that 
right? And yeah. choosing that to yes. say it's okay to marry Wentworth. And Wentworth does the same in return, right? Yes, he has to learn to love Lady Russell. He as says well. that even though he's, you know, he's upset that Lady Russell persuaded Anne initially eight years ago yeah. not to break off the engagement. Um, now he is still wanting to love her and forgive her for that. Mm-hmm, for the sake of anger. Right. And I think that shows both their characters and their humility in that they can um, value love and Anne and Anne's happiness mm-hmm. over their hangups. Yes. Yeah. I love that. And this ending of this chapter. I'm not going to talk too much about it just for the sake of time, but I want you to think about it because it's interesting. This is not, it's a happy ending. It's a happy marriage. Things have come, things have come into fruition, but it, uh, Austin ends the novel with <laughs> Anne's anxiety over when we're being in the Navy. Yeah. And um, it's just a dash of real life. And I kind of love that she does that and yeah. doesn't just give you like, and that was it. It was great. And loved right. it. And loved being the wife of, right. you know, which she does. A sailor who might be going off to war. Yes. I mean, this was written during the Napoleonic Wars, mm-hmm. recall. Um, actually, it was written during a brief respite of peace. And then they went back to war pretty quickly after mm-hmm. that. So um, Napoleon, yeah. that old... That old scum is lurking <laughs> around the corner, just waiting. Right, right. Um, and there's that real world tension that's right. still present. Happiness uh, with this marriage and the relationship, but not free of all hardship. Yes. Right. And as as looking forward, knowing that mm-hmm. it, it's, it's not a fairy tale. It's, it's and to compound life. that, like we talked about before, Kellynch Hall is still not. Yeah. It's theirs. gone. Mm-hmm. It's not theirs. And it's, uh, I mean, and that is, it feels like a hole in yeah. their, all of their lives. Yeah. Right. Um, but Anne has chosen a new way of life. She's chosen the Navy. She's chosen this sort of budding idea of a leveling between classes. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously it's not complete. There's still very much a class dynamic, but it's not the old landed gentry being the center of moral authority anymore. And the world is changing and we see that here, but it's, it's changing with pain too. Mm-hmm. And that's the end of the novel, oh, which goodness. is crazy. I know. But, I feel like we should have, we should have had some like fireworks, like, right? some fireworks and like a, an amazing, like we should have had like point. a champagne toast or something. Oh, like man. we kind of blew wow. it, but um, I mean, it, what, what, a, what a fun, story though and amazing yes and i i would like to um end well first of all i i need to do my little spiel here um which is subscribe to the youtube channel or to the podcast whatever floats your boat follow old books with grace at instagram um or follow the blog at oldbookswithgrace.com and seriously i i I see those and i appreciate them and they they matter and they mean a lot to me and i kind of hate saying that like saying and announcing it but it's true and um but let's do let's i want to end on persuasion and not on that because (laughs) blah so um i'm going to end with a question for you Mm. out there in the world Scott and I have been dancing around this 
a ton. And I'm going to, uh, I'm gonna say uh, this Cornell West, he begins his keynote talk with um, noting that Jane Austen is sort of like a spiritual daughter of Samuel Johnson, who was this 18th century writer and critic. This, um, and, and Cornel West believes the, the finest critic in the English language. Um, and he's not alone in that opinion. But Samuel Johnson said that wisdom is the fundamental criterion of our evaluation of literature. So where we find wisdom is what distinguishes the greatest literature from, from lesser literature. And, and that's why he loves Jane Austen. And so I want to ask you, now that you've finished Persuasion, where have you found wisdom? What is that wisdom? How has it influenced you? And I will share this quote from Cornel West that he's drawing out on his take on what this wisdom is. Yours might include this. It might be different than this. I don't know. Share it with me if you want. I'd love to hear it. I'd be fascinated, but I'm going to share this bit with you. I talk about it this way. I tell my students each time they enter my classes at Harvard, Yale, Princeton, or Union Theological Seminary in the spirit of Jane Austen, you've entered this class in order to learn how to die. And they look at me, oh, I don't know whether I want to take Professor West's class. I don't know about that. Jane Austen teaches us that to learn how to die is to unlearn slavery. To learn how to die is to engage in courageous self-examination and self-interrogation and self-scrutiny. And anytime you let a certain prejudice go or let a certain conception of yourself go as you mature, as you develop, as you grow, that is a form of death. There's no growth, development, maturation without learning how to die. Giving up certain assumptions, giving up certain presuppositions, giving up certain misperceptions and misjudgments as you actually come into being the person that you can be at your best. Thanks for listening and for reading along with the Summerall Book Club. I had a blast. I hope you did too. Thanks for coming on, Scott.